The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Today I complete a series of sermons that have not been tied to one book, but if you've been with us, this is the 13th week of messages that I've sought to showcase some great aspect of who Jesus Christ is. I don't know if this is a particularly inspiring illustration, but I thought of it as if there were 13 billboards that you had to drive by, each one featuring some kind of aspect of what the Scripture says belongs to Christ in His wonderful glory as the exhibition of God. In in, uh, 2 Corinthians, I haven't preached on this text before this series, but 2 Corinthians 4, 6 is a great verse. It says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Jesus Christ is God's exhibition of himself and all of his great thoughts and his plans and his intentions to gather a believing people for himself. And that's what we've been trying to look at, significant scenes that raise up Christ from prehistoric time as he participated in the creation with the Father, as he was the king installed on David's holy hill in Psalm 2, and on through the virgin birth and other aspects of Christ. We couldn't begin to touch them all. But uh, this today is the last of those that I'm looking at. I'll have something separate as a, by way of a farewell for you next Sunday. Christianity is Christ is what we're looking at. Let me read the letter to the Philippians, a very precious letter. You probably remember it comes to the church that was You might say the dearest to Paul's heart. He didn't have controversies within this church. They were his dear friends. He thought he was not going to see them again, and as far as we know, that proved to be so. But here's what he wrote. I'm breaking in the middle of chapter 1 at verse 15. Philippians 1, beginning at 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I will rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ." And to die is gain. 
And if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you might have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Father, bless this word that we might grow from it, be built up in it, just as your apostle enabled early Christians to draw closer to Christ through the word. May we also this morning for his praise. Amen. I'm giving you this thought. What would you say if you were asked to describe in the fewest possible words the core essence of Christianity? You've got one sentence. What would you say in one sentence or phrase is the core essence of Christianity? I believe Paul presented this in our text today in verse 21 of Philippians 1. In just 12 words, he said, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Dr. John Stott wrote, The person and work of Christ are the foundation rock on which the Christian religion is built. Take Christ out of Christianity, he said, and you disembowel it. There is practically nothing left. Christ is the center of Christianity. All else is mere circumference. Well said by Dr. Stott. Christianity is not an ethical system of behavior. It is not a striving to obey Ten Commandments. It is not a philosophy. It is not a religion, strictly speaking, at all, because religion is man trying to please God in his own efforts. Christianity is in its simplest essence a relationship with the living person of Jesus Christ, thereby bringing you into the knowledge of the one true God. I find the thesis for this message today in Philippians 1.21. I'll just restate it a little bit. The beating heart of Christianity is a joyful confidence in knowing Jesus Christ as Lord in this life and the next. I first would ask you to consider the opening part of this text, or it's really the middle of the chapter, of course. Paul, being in prison, writing to this favorite church of his, Verses 18 to 20 take our attention, first of all, as we read here about total trust in Christ as the great essential for living life today. Total trust in Christ. I once was driven past the home of a hymn writer. He's not that well known anymore today, but in eastern Ohio, a friend who lived there pointed out the house of where a man named Will Thompson lived. You probably don't know about Will Thompson, but he wrote a number of hymns, and one of them said, Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. And that's the way Paul lived. Jesus, whom he never met in the flesh, but did meet in a vivid vision, 
was all the world to Paul. It turned his life around on a dime, completely changing the man from the inside out. And Paul began to live not as a self-righteous keeper of the law of God, but as a Christ-related man. He told about it in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but the life I live now, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm asking today if that verse and others we're going to look at ring true to you. Can you say Christianity is my relationship to the living God through his Son, Jesus Christ? Paul was in jail. It was a Roman jail. He was under some rather serious charges, trumped up charges, and charges that were really just done to get him out of the way. And he yet could give praise here in this chapter for his own circumstances of being in prison, saying, in effect, it doesn't really matter. God is working out his purposes in me and through me, and he will get glory from this. All that has happened, he said, will turn out for my salvation, not for my death and that's it, although it did turn out for his death. It also turned out for his salvation. And he said, I expect not to be disappointed because Christ will be exalted in my body. No matter what happens, Nero can take my life. He has that power and I even expect it to happen, Paul is basically saying here. But it doesn't matter because Nero's court is not the highest court. I live before the highest judge of all, confident that I belong to him and he will do what is right and be glorified in me and through me. In Romans 1.16, the same Paul wrote, I am not disappointed in the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Paul had no visible earthly reason for optimism about his circumstances. It looked like he was going to die, and we think he did not leave this prison that he was writing from, but indeed he did die under the acts of the Roman government. But Paul is saying his entire confidence is anchored in Christ alone. And so his salvation, his ultimately being delivered in relationship to God and giving glory to God is sure, it's secure, it's unshakable. Notice in verse 19 that Paul spoke about the spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul wasn't claiming that Jesus was some kind of apparition who appeared to him daily and walked with him and that he saw this Jesus and saw his face and heard his words. He did have one great vision of him early in his, at the time of his conversion. But he's saying simply that he lives in union with Christ. Jesus Christ, who the author of Hebrews said is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Spirit of Jesus Christ was in Paul and surrounded his whole life and determined all his circumstances. We live in the same way if we belong to Christ as his disciples. He is our present possession. His salvation is ours, not just in the future when we die. It's ours now. 
It's kept in heaven for us, the, the apostle wrote in another place. So no matter what you're disappointed about today or how you might be struggling or how your family or your career is not going so well or some great difficulty, financial or otherwise, is facing you, no matter what, God's grace through the work in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the guarantee and the great goal that you ought to be striving towards. A man and woman can be in love and be engaged to be married and maybe have to have a uh, long separation. My wife and I dated three years before we were married, and part of that time one of us was in college and one was not, and uh, there was no texting, there was no email, and a phone call was an extra charge because we were about 100 miles apart. So we didn't have great intimacy of conversation except by, guess what, letters. Young people, ask your father, what the, your father or mother what those are because you've probably never written one. We were just discussing the cost of a stamp today. They were five cents at that time. And Carol and I would, would probably each write about four times a week, and letters would actually cross. She'd be addressing something that I had written about the day before, and she hadn't heard what I had to say yet. And nevertheless, we wanted to communicate because our lives were completely linked together and tied together, and we thought of each other all the time. And, you know, one of her, she was an organ major in college, and her distinguished organ professor would see her coming. I'd walk her to the lesson with him or something. He'd see me there, sometimes waiting to meet her afterwards. And he'd say, I, I see you're not going to end up on an organ bench. You're going to be in somebody's kitchen. And he was basically right. We longed to see our lives being as deeply involved as possible in those years before we married. And this is something like at least a Christian's unique relationship with Christ. We, we don't see him. We don't pretend that there's a video of Jesus playing in our brain. But without seeing him, we have the power of who and what he is communicated to us in all the scriptures, Old Testament and New, and we love him. And we desire him. And we want to know what he is thinking about us and what directives he's given for our lives and what comforts he has spoken when we experience grief and sorrow. We want to live Christ-centered lives, not me-centered lives. And so we look to Christ and we live in Christ. That wonderful phrase that Paul used for the Christian's current day, this day, existence. We are in Christ. Christ is in us by His Spirit. And that's not mysticism. That's truth. That's how God leads His people and comforts His people. Well, then we come to verse 21, which is really the keynote of this passage. And my second point to you says this, our present life in Christ is leading to a future unlimited dose of glory with Christ. You see how big little prepositions can be? We live today in Christ. We look forward to living with Christ face to face. Another fine hymn writer, it was Samuel Rutherford from a long time ago, 
And Rutherford declared in one of my favorite hymns, Oh Christ, He is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted, but more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness His mercy doth expand. And glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The hymn writer was saying it's as if we were playing in a puddle here today, but we will have an ocean fullness with Christ when we see Him face to face and dwell with Him in eternity. And it's not so far away for any of us. Paul said life today means knowing Christ to the utmost extent that my sinful, wayward mind can grasp Him as I study Him and anticipate Him from the Word of God. But, but he said, guess what? The worst experience that everybody dreads, namely death, is going to bring me a gain of knowing Christ of enormous proportions. You see, the worst thing physically that might happen to me, of course, is to die, to leave this world. But yet it's also the best thing because it brings me capital G-A-I-N, the gain of dwelling with Christ face-to-face forever. Less than 24 hours ago, I was in this pulpit with almost this many people in the sanctuary for a death a funeral of Howie Eckert, member of our church. And Howie had gone through a terrible year of suffering. His wife survived, of course, beside him through that suffering. And his body experienced a mortal blow. But yet we were saying, as sad as that was, as sad as it was to say farewell to Howie, we were saying farewell to somebody who knew Christ and had experienced infinite gain in the presence of the Savior. Isn't it remarkable that when, you, when you're at a Christian's funeral, you are mourning something sad, of course. It's a loss. And sometimes circumstances are more tragic than others. But at the same time, you're, you're standing on the edge and forgetting about the fact that the greatest possible thing has happened. A Christian soul has entered the presence of his Savior. Wonderful. What could possibly be greater or better? That's what Paul is saying here. I know Christ today. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. I long for more and more of Him. But being in Christ, great as it is, isn't being with Christ. And that's coming. Being in union with Him forever, unendingly, gloriously, wonderfully. The greatest thing that could possibly happen. So while today my Christian life knows how to savor some degrees of joy and assurance and power and comfort in trusting Jesus Christ, after death comes what the hymn writer called an ocean fullness of knowing Him in an immediate way. Why would I not approach death altogether differently than other people in this world if I know that is what's on the other side? And as Paul speaks about this, somebody might say, boy, this guy almost sounds like he's suicidal when he says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. What, does he have a suicide wish or something? No. He has a Christ wish that the partial knowledge of Christ that he has now in Christ would become fullness with Christ. And he hardly knows how to step back 
from the brink of death because good a thing as life can be and he would like to see these friends and others and, and carry out further work. He's thinking the best thing I can possibly think of is to be with Christ forever. Death is a monster. Death is an ogre, not a part of God's original plan. Death invades and damages and delivers body blows to our good creation and good people that are close to us that we love. And it's certainly not something we desire in and of itself. But yet, the effect of it upon a Christian is completely different. It doesn't have the hopelessness that you have with a non-Christian's death. To be absent from this body means being present with the Lord. Paul says that is better by far, indescribably better. And so here he is, torn. Thirdly, he says, I'm torn between my life in Christ and this limitless experience that I shall know with Christ. But we should take away from this text, as Paul signed off on that particular part of it at least, the conclusion that knowing Christ as Lord calls us to a present duty of serving others for Jesus' sake as long as we are left in this world. You see, the heart of Christian discipleship isn't just saying, me and Jesus, me and Jesus, oh, we have a great relationship, oh, I look forward to heaven, and sit around gazing into the misty future and hoping that I will soon die and be with Jesus. That's, that's not really what Christian hope is about. It's about going on the basis of our relationship with Christ to become as useful as we can towards leading others to know Him and love Him as we do. There were deeply mistaken Christians in the first and second century who, who uh, probably heard this letter from Paul and thought, oh yes, to be with Christ, that's the greatest thing. And some of them in the time of the Roman Colosseum and those things even more or less put themselves in the way of getting arrested because they knew that they might be executed in the Colosseum or something like that, facing wild lions or gladiators. And they said, great, I'll be with Christ. I seek death. I want death. And they were deliberate martyrs in some cases who thought martyrdom was the best thing because they'd be with Christ so much more quickly and better. Well, that's wrong. Paul says, yes, when death comes, I'm ready to accept it as the greatest thing because it's going to open the door to eternal life. But I'm not sitting here saying, I'm going to kick that door open any sooner than God provides for it to be open to me. God has given each of us a definite lifespan. And his son aims to spiritually indwell and use us through that lifespan. You all know that I am facing one more Sunday in this pulpit as your pastor, and I've certainly had many reflections about that and about one part of me wishing, gee, Lord, can I have a couple more years? And God has said through different physical ailments, no, you can't. I have something else for you. You've got to move on. Your 24 years here were hopefully used by me, but it's time to move on. And we have to face those things. Sometimes our usefulness in situations is cut short of what we would expect. But are we determined, like Paul, that all the time you give me in a particular situation, all the time that you give me to be a parent of this child until he or she reaches maturity, 
or to fulfill this job or have a relationship with this neighbor, that I will fill that responsibility with the knowledge and the testimony of Jesus Christ flowing through me and from me to serve others and make Christ known. God's people who are at peace with both their lives in Christ and their death, bringing the gain of eternal life, are people who can do marvelous things. I was thinking this week of a college classmate of mine. I had a few classes with her and knew her as a casual friend. A woman named Libby Brown was in college with me, and beyond our school time, I never met her husband, but I knew that she was engaged our senior year. And she married her fiancé, Tom Little, Dr. Tom Little. Libby and Tom spent their entire career beyond college and graduate school as medical missionaries in a country you will recoil when I tell you where they were, Afghanistan, their entire medical missionary career. They served the people in the mountains and valleys and obscure villages of one of the most dangerous countries in the whole world. You know that. The Russians occupied Afghanistan. They were there. The Americans have been at war in Afghanistan now, the longest war of our country's history. They were there, at least until a few years ago. And they raised three girls there. Can you imagine? Wouldn't you think, oh my goodness, I've got three daughters. I've got to be somewhere that's safer than Afghanistan. Just plain reason tells me, don't be there. But that's where they were. And in 2010, out of the sheer blue, the Taliban captured Tom Little, not Libby, and other medical workers that were part of the same team, non-political people who were not with the CIA or anything like that. They were serving the poor people of Afghanistan. They were captured and swiftly executed. Libby was able to come back to the States with her children. But I remember hearing about this through our college alumni announcements and thinking to myself, why, oh why, did they stay in that dangerous place when they knew that at any time they could be grabbed and executed or imprisoned or something just because a terrorist wanted to make an example of an American? But I didn't have to think about it that long because I really knew the answer why they were there. They undertook lives of severe danger and trial and difficulty and separation ultimately by death because they knew that to live is Christ and to die is gain. If we really will undertake to say as individuals, folks, for me to live is Christ, I think we take on a a real responsibility because we are no longer able to say alongside that, I belong entirely to myself and I will do whatever I want to do. Nobody tells me how to spend my life. No, the Bible says someone does tell you We are not our own. We have been bought with the price of the precious blood of Christ. And as His new creations, Christ living in us by His Spirit, we are the chosen vessels of God filled with the Spirit of Christ strategically placed in this world, maybe in a place, just a humble neighborhood somewhere in Lancaster, PA. You say, I'm certainly not going to Afghanistan to be a medical doctor there. But God has given you a particular lifespan to live out with Christ as his indwelling presence in you 
and he has a task for you to do. It might be as small as befriending a, a lonely neighbor who has no family and helping that person through old age, witnessing to a co-worker, raising the children he's given to you. I don't know what it is for you, but I know he has a call for you to be where you are and to be the representative of Christ in some manner. The heart of Christianity is simple. Knowing Christ as your Lord and pursuing a vital union with Him by the Word of God and by worship and prayer. The supreme interest of the Christian's life is to know Christ. I love 1 Peter 1.8. We don't have to have a 10-foot picture of Christ on the wall here for you to, to know Him. In fact, if we had a 10-foot picture on the wall, the Bible says don't worship that way. But here's what it says in testimony of Peter. 1 Peter 1.8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Inexpressible and glorious joy in pursuit of relationship with Jesus Christ. That's our calling. And that's the essence of Christianity that you would fall down like Thomas did before him and put your hand in the wounds in his and the wound in his side and say, my Lord and my God. And if you are asked by the Lord in your dying hour, and you will be, because this is heaven's entrance exam, if you're asked to state your life's entire meaning in one sentence, I hope you can say, for me, to live is Christ, and to die is only gain. May you be able to say that with all your heart, soul, and mind today. Father, thank you for the greatness of your Son that you've spread all over the pages of Scripture as we have looked at it in past weeks. May we remember him in perhaps new ways as greater than any human being who has walked this earth. And as the eternal preexistent Son of you, the Father, the one who lives and abides today as Lord of the universe and will be its judge in the end, may we live lives that are in Christ now in order to be with Christ forever. Father, make us your champions of a new life, victors in a new life here in this world today. For Jesus' sake and in his glory. Amen.